Brad just gave us an awesome introduction to exactly what we're talking about today. As you might know, if you've been with us for the last number of weeks, we're studying together through the book of Acts. And we've called this sermon series One, because the book of Acts introduces us to the one God who establishes his one church. He gives that church one mission, and he has an invitation for you and for me and for everybody to let that one mission become the one focus of all of our lives. And there's a lot of words we use about that. We're calling it focus. Brad just called it calling. You might call it purpose. But all of it has the same thing. God has something in store for you to do. But not surprisingly, as we walk that journey, as we try to figure out what to do, um, there's challenges that come along the way. And today, we're going to talk about some of the challenges we face as we try to live our lives with one focus. I was reminded of the challenge just this morning. See, every Sunday morning, uh, I bring one of my kids with me early when we come to church in the morning. And we've got a nice rotation in plan for which kid gets to come on which Sunday. Now, Esther, my uh, older daughter, she is kind of the information keeper in the home. She's the one who tends to always know what's going on and she keeps things organized. Except for her bedroom. She doesn't actually keep her bedroom organized. But things like whose turn it is, she knows. And so this morning I say, Esther, whose turn is it to come with daddy to church this morning? And Esther looks at me and she says, daddy, it's complicated. I was like, what do you mean? It's complicated. Well, Esther had theater a couple weeks ago, and then Naomi wasn't feeling good. And so the order's been mixed up, and it's complicated. And I'm like, Esther, I don't want to know if it's complicated. I want simplicity. See, here's the thing about complexity. This is actually the topic we're going to talk about for the whole morning, is the way that complexity can just frustrate and ruin and, and, and th- cause to fall apart all sorts of plans in life. And this opening observation, it's really worth the price of admission for today. Here's the thing about complexity. Complexity complicates things And I don't want things to be complicated. You don't want things to be complicated. We want things to be simple. I like it when things are simple. But there's yet one more problem with that. See, we live a thing called life. We don't live fantasy. We don't live make-believe. We live life. And here's the thing about life. Life is complicated. And so if we're going to try to lead a life of focus, a focus that brings clarity in the midst of all sorts of challenges, we have to do that by overcoming the challenge of life in a complicated world. As I was getting ready for this morning, I was reminded of an experience I had sometime in high school. I was driving down Sunny Beach Road in northern Minnesota, It's this windy lakeside road. It's a narrow road with no shoulders. It leads to my grandparents' house. Well, I was driving in our old blue Volkswagen Jetta along this narrow, windy road when suddenly a whiteout snowstorm comes out of nowhere and brings my visibility to zero. My hands clenched the steering wheel even tighter as though 
gripping the steering wheel would make me drive better somehow. And I remember that feeling of not being able to see anything, of wondering if I'm going to stay on the road and of hoping I make it to my destination in one piece. And what struck me is that complexity, it's like a whiteout. When we're facing complicated situations in life, it makes it much harder to see where we're going on this windy road we so often find ourselves traveling. However, you know, I was born and raised in northern Minnesota, so I knew what to do. I knew that, one, you can't just stop in the middle of the road because you don't know if the car behind you, which also can't see, is also going to stop. And they might smash into you behind you or somebody might smash into you in front. No, you have to keep going until you're safely at a place where you can pull off the road. And so I did the only thing you can safely do. I locked my attention on the small glimmer of yellow paint dotted in the middle of the road. My headlights just barely illuminated it right in front of me. And I knew that if I kept all my focus on that one guiding line, I would stay on the road and make it to a driveway where I could pull off and wait out the storm. I knew that my focus would give me clarity in the midst of the whiteout complexity I was facing. You know what I didn't do? When things were complicated, when the snowstorm made it impossible to see, when I was figuring out where to go, you know what I didn't do? I didn't get distracted. I didn't check my text messages or maintain my Snapchat streaks. I didn't delete old emails or schedule a babysitter. I was in high school. None of those things existed. But you get the point. I didn't let myself get distracted by anything in life. Rather, I kept my focus on the one critical thing. I mean, imagine what would happen if that snowstorm came in and I drove along going, wow, look at the snow. Look at all that snow falling around me. Look at how big the snowflakes are. If I let my attention stay on the snowstorm, you can guarantee I would drive right off the road. Well, I think just like what I learned driving through a snowstorm in high school, the same is true as we drive through the snowstorms, the complex situations of our lives. If we let all of our attention get focused on the snowstorm, the only thing that's going to happen is we're going to drive off the road. But if instead we put our focus on somewhere that leads us in the right direction, then we can and we will drive through any storms we face in life. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens to the Apostle Paul, the man whose life we've been following for a number of weeks now, a man who lives with intense focus in his life. Let me just briefly review what's been going on in Paul's life over the last couple chapters we've read over the last few Sundays. You may recall that Paul was on a mission and he felt like God himself had given Paul his mission. Not only that, but Paul heard God call him to go back to Jerusalem. Everybody that Paul knew was like, Paul, this is a bad idea. Don't go back to Jerusalem. It's dangerous. It's going to turn into a problem for you. But Paul believed God called him, and so he went. Well, when Paul got there, 
he was going to try to patch things up with the Jewish religious leaders. But instead of patching things up, a violent mob seized Paul and tried to kill him so that a group of Roman soldiers had to come and both imprison him for starting a riot, but also protect him from the mob that was trying to kill him. The Roman soldiers didn't know exactly what to do because there was so much confusion. So they took Paul, a Jewish man, and brought him before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Judaism at that time and at that place. And that's where we ended the story last week and where we're going to pick up the story this week. But before we get into the next phase of the story, I want to just remind us and also introduce us to some of the main characters. So first of all, there's this man, Paul, who you may recall was a zealous Jewish man who met the resurrected Jesus and had his life turned around. And it's because of that change in his life that Paul's now in conflict with the Jewish leaders. Here's some of the things, interestingly, that Paul often says about just how passionate of a Jewish man he was in his life. Here's what he says. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul claims he was faultless. Really, Paul? Like you didn't even go two miles over the speed limit, not even once in your life? No, Paul would say, I am faultless. Paul was proud of his Jewish pedigree. He said it again in the book of Acts, just before the scene we're going to read about today. Here's what Paul said uh, earlier in Acts 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Paul is doing some serious name dropping. The city of Cilicia, it's a big deal to be born them. A student of Gamaliel, he's basically the best teacher you want to be under. Paul is establishing with clarity just how significant his commitment to the life of Judaism is. And here's the problem with that. Paul is now standing in the Sanhedrin before the high priest, a man named Ananias. You can learn about Ananias by reading through the book of Acts, but there's also other historians that tell us more about these biblical characters. We're actually going to hear from a few different historians right now that describe for us some of the circumstances Paul is living through right now. And these historians highlight the complexity of these circumstances. So, the high priest, Ananias, we can learn about him from the Jewish historian named Josephus. Here's what Josephus says. But this younger Ananias, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees, 
who are very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Jews, as we have already observed. (laughs) So Paul, who boldly establishes his Jewish pedigree, is standing before Ananias, who loves harshly judging Jewish people. This is an unstoppable force about to crash into an immovable object. The clash is going to be giant. And then we've got our third character, which is the Roman soldiers. We have both the foot soldiers, the centurions who are in charge of a hundred soldiers, and the commander who oversees a number of centurions. And the soldiers find themselves stuck in the middle of this clash between Paul and Ananias. Now here's the problem for the soldiers. See, they have a commitment to make Caesar, the emperor of Rome, very happy. And it's hard to keep Caesar happy because Caesar is a bit of a fickle man. One of the Caesars right around the time Paul is living right now was a man named Nero. And here's the ancient historian Suetonius telling us about just how narcissistic Nero was. Many were those who became his friends or enemies according to whether they had praised him lavishly or sparingly. So first of all, you can lose your job and get on the outs of of the Caesar simply by not praising him enough, how much more challenging would it be for this Roman commander to navigate these complicated situations that they are standing in? And as if Paul and Ananias wasn't complicated enough, here's the other thing. Paul told the commander that he was a Roman citizen. And being a Roman citizen was a big deal. Being a Roman citizen guaranteed certain protections for your life. So the commander now wants to punish Paul because Paul stirred up a riot, and that's not okay. But the commander also wants to protect Paul because Paul's a Roman citizen, and you have to protect Roman citizens. Here's one more ancient author describing how important it is to protect a Roman citizen. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him, an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. That last line tells us a little something about the value of human life in the ancient Roman Empire. It's almost an act of murder. So here's what we've got. We have got Paul, we've got the Jewish authorities, And we've got the Roman authorities stuck in the middle of a complicated situation. It's like a whiteout. And sure enough, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities have a really hard time navigating this windy road. But it turns out, Paul is able to act with clarity and focus in spite of the complexity. And I think that you and I might be able to learn something from him today. So the commander brings Paul before the Sanhedrin, and here's what happens next. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So 
The next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Okay, so first of all, if you're looking for a new insult to use in life, I don't know why you'd be looking for an insult, but if you are, whitewashed wall is apparently a very offensive thing to say. You could try it out somewhere in life. But beyond that, there's a couple things I want to highlight about this really intense scene. Paul just got himself slapped across the face on order of the high priest. And the whole story starts out with this one line that just stood out to me when I read it. The Greek phrase was gnotai asphales. It said that the Roman commander wanted to know with certainty. And I love that phrase because it highlights just how complex the circumstances were. The Roman commander's looking around going, Paul says this, and Ananias says that, and the crowd is shouting both this and that, and, and I don't know what to do. So like many of us, the commander wants to know with certainty. And I kind of chuckle on that, because I think I know what it's like to have a desire to find some more simplicity and certainty It's like the other day when I came home and I found my sweet little Naomi crying. And I said, Naomi, why are you crying? And she said, Asa hit me. And I looked at Asa and Asa said, no hit. And then Esther, again, the responsible one, comes in and says, well, daddy, Naomi took the teddy bear from Asa. And so that's why Asa hit her. And then Naomi says, but daddy, The teddy bear is mine. I was just letting Asa borrow it. And then Tobiah and Esther in unison shout, No, the teddy bear is mine. And I find myself going, I just want to know with certainty what's going on, who's in the right, who's in the wrong, and I have absolutely no way to figure it out. Let me ask you this. Right now in your life, Are you in the middle of any complicated circumstances? Do you have any situations in your life right now where you're looking out and you're going like, you know what? The snowstorm is just too heavy. It's like a fog has settled on the fields of my life and I can't see a thing. Like I'm wearing glasses and I permanently have a mask on, fogging them up every second of every day. Are you living through any complicated situations in your life right now. Don't you wish, like the Roman commander, like me with my kids, don't you just wish you could know something with certainty? Well, we're going to get to, in just a second, exactly how we can find more certainty 
in the midst of the confusion. But first, back to the story. I just want to highlight one more time how many layers have been built in this scene. Here's all the forces at play in this story right now. We've got the Roman law. What Caesar says goes. And then we've got the Roman authorities, the soldiers, trying to apply Roman law. One of the things that the Roman Empire loves more than anything is peace, the Pax Romana. It was basically peace by force. But in order to maintain the peace in Rome, Caesar demanded that riots and violence never be allowed. So the Roman soldiers, the authorities, want to uphold Roman law by keeping the peace. So they arrest Paul. But then we've got Jewish law. And interestingly, you may have heard about this before, but the Roman Empire gives the Jewish people quite a bit of freedom to exercise their own legal authority. And that Jewish law is integrated with Jewish theology. And I can only imagine the Roman soldiers going, theology, no, 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 that's not my area of expertise. I don't deal with that. However, the Jewish authorities are layering theology on top of law, on top of Judaism, on top of Rome. And everybody's looking around going, what am I supposed to do? And as if that wasn't enough, you ask anybody in the room what happened, and we're getting a number of different and competing versions of the same story. It's like me trying to get one clear story from my four kids, except it's not my four kids. It's some of the most powerful men in the world at that time. So the Roman commander, at this point, I can see him sort of stepping back and being like, I'm just going to let this, play one, this one play out. Ananias, the high priest, he's trying to figure out what he can or can't do with this man who's under Jewish law but seems to be shirking Jewish law. Paul, however, seems to act with striking clarity in the midst of what would otherwise be an overwhelming circumstance. Paul starts off with really a quite brilliant move. We're going to pick up now right after Paul had been slapped in the mouth and uh, told he was supposed to be respectful because this was the high priest. Paul starts with some good thing. He starts with an apology. Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. This is really good move here, Paul. I mean, seriously, husbands, wives, take note right now. A little argument comes up. Hopefully there's not a slap across the face, but a little argument comes up. You just start with apology. You just say, you know what? I was wrong. Let me identify how I was wrong. Let me apologize for how I was wrong. Let me tell you I love you and cook you dinner. This is a good way to resolve conflict. Paul would have done well to keep his mouth closed right after this point. But unfortunately, maybe far too often like you and I also do, we don't keep our mouth closed, and Paul doesn't keep his mouth closed either. Rather, after a beautiful apology, 
he keeps on talking. And this is what he says. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Paul, Paul, the resurrection of the dead is not a topic you bring up when you're around the Sadducees and the Pharisees. This is way off limits. I don't know if you know this, but at that time and in that place, among the Jewish religion, the topic of resurrection was highly, highly divisive. And Paul knew that. I mean, this would be on par with me getting up right here and telling you exactly which political party every Christian should vote for, or making some sort of outlandish claim about strict dietary rules, or maybe even making some unbelievable statement like, In-N-Out Burger is way overrated. I mean, these are things you don't say out loud. This is off, this is out of bounds, this is off topic. You just don't say these things. But what does Paul do? He just reaches back, he grabs his can of gasoline, and he just tosses it into the fire. It was already an explosive situation, and he is adding more fuel and waiting for the fireworks. And sure enough, after Paul mentions resurrection, here's what happens next. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So first of all, I looked up that word torn to pieces, and the Greek literally means torn to pieces. That's what it means. And so what we have is Paul narrowly escaped being murdered by an angry mob. And because he's a Roman citizen, his arrest turned into protection under the soldiers. And then he comes to the Sanhedrin. Compared to the mob, he's now in a more peaceful, safe environment. And instead of seizing this opportunity to smooth things out, Paul incites a new riot that becomes so violent, he's almost killed again, so the Roman soldiers yet again have to drag him out by the skin of his teeth. It would lead somebody to to, to ask, Paul, what in the world is going on in your mind? Paul, why would you say something so foolish? But Paul didn't think it was foolish. See, Paul's not confused about what he's trying to do in life. This whiteout, this windy road Paul's navigating, it's not overwhelming him because Paul had clarity of focus. Here's what Paul's focus was. The words that Jesus spoke to Paul 
spoke to other people about Paul, about the one focus of Paul's life. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Paul's one focus is to proclaim the name of Jesus. And the reason Paul knows this is because Paul saw Jesus dead and then talked to Jesus who had come back to life. For Paul, resurrection is the good news about the name of Jesus. So even though everybody else in the room is trying to navigate this bafflingly difficult circumstance, for Paul, it's not complicated at all. He's in the room with all of the leaders of Judaism. The obvious thing for Paul to do is to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul knows that his challenging circumstances are exactly where he needs to be. Paul looks around at this room that would confuse and baffle the best of us, but because he knows what God has called him to do, he looks at the room and he says, this is an incredible opportunity. This challenging circumstance is actually a compelling opportunity. So let me ask you again, what's the complexity you're facing in your life right now? I mean, if you're honest, I think you would say that complexity is a challenging circumstance. And sometimes when the circumstances get this challenging, we just feel like we're trying to see through the fog in front of us. We're trying to keep our head above water. What are we supposed to do? Well, here's what we have to do. The first thing we have to do is ask the question that we've been asking every single week. See, Paul could cut through the confusion because of his clarity that came from his focus. So you and I have to ask ourselves seriously, do you know the focus of your life? And let's just acknowledge something. I've heard from a number of people in the church as we've been going through this series, and I appreciate the feedback. It's super helpful. For some people, this is a great reminder because there are people similar to Brad, who shared earlier, who feel like they have focus. And so this is a good reminder to stay focused on our one focus. But for others, it feels like, well, I get it, Carl. I get how focus can give clarity. It can help me cut through complexity. But what if I don't have my focus? What if, what if I'm trying to learn and lean in and figure it out, but it's just not there? So I want to speak to that now for just a second and again in a minute from now. First, I want to remind us of something we've seen all the way through the book of Acts. Actually, everybody who is a Jesus follower already has the same focus for all of our lives. Here's the focus. Jesus gave it to us at the end of his life. The focus is make disciples. How do we do that? We do that by looking at the life of Jesus and trying to live our lives so that our lives look more like the life of Jesus. What does it look like? It means taking the story of our lives and simply becoming more and more comfortable sharing our story with anybody that's interested in listening. And then naturally, inviting other people to share that journey with us of living a life of trying to go closer and closer 
to Jesus. Jesus said, make disciples. How? By going. Going next door into the ends of the earth. By teaching everything Jesus himself taught. Not just to know it, but to actually live it. And then when people put their faith in Christ, to welcome them to the family of God through the beautiful celebration of baptism. That's our focus. Our focus is to follow Jesus. And we can know that as we become more and more familiar with the sounds of God's voice, that general focus for everybody can have a clearer, specific focus for our life. And that movement from general to specific is what we're going to talk about in a second. But here's what I want to ask you first. Think about that complexity. And if the one focus of your life is actually to faithfully follow Jesus, to share your story with others, to make your life look like his life, here's my question. How might your focus bring clarity to your experience of complexity? As you're navigating whatever that snowstorm is in your life, are you letting yourself give too much attention to the size of the snowflakes instead of putting all your attention on the God who will lead you through the storm? If we'll commit to making it a regular habit, I'd actually challenge you, would you commit to making a daily habit of just finding some time, maybe just five minutes, to quiet our hearts, to quiet the noise and a thousand voices in our head, and learn to become more familiar to the one voice whose words truly matter. The one voice who will clarify your focus for you, who will encourage you and strengthen you and remind you along the way that you're doing okay. Would you make it your commitment to daily stop and become more and more familiar with the sound of God's voice so that anytime God speaks, you can respond and say, yes, Father, I hear you. In this story in Acts, we see that very thing happening as Paul's in this just such a challenging circumstance and we find out the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem so you must also testify about me in Rome know this as God continues to clarify your focus for your life he'll also continue to strengthen you to continue forward on the journey that he calls you to walk. Which means we've kind of got a choice. We're all navigating windy roads in a thick whiteout. And if we have nothing to guard our focus, we're going to be kind of like the soldiers or the high priest. We're going to find ourselves filled with confusion, simply asking, what should I do? We're going to find ourselves responding with avoidance, passing the problem on to someone else. We'll see that happen next week. Or we're going to find ourselves with delay simply putting off and putting off the critical decisions we need to make in life. And what that means is that now, like always, it's time for your move. And it's time for my move. Wherever you are experiencing the challenges of complexity... Having a clear focus will provide clarity in the midst of confusion. So some of you, I know, are saying, okay, Carl, I get it. I'd love to have greater clarity, but how do I find greater 
focus? And I've been taking that question seriously, and so I once again created three response activities that I'd love to encourage you to evaluate or to engage with. Notice, I'm not calling them homework anymore. We got rid of the word homework. We're calling them response activities now, I hope. That's a more inviting term. But like always, journaling. If we want to learn the focus of our life, we need to reflect on and learn from the experiences of our life. Studying scripture. I created two different options, both of which are designed to help you hear from God through his word to find greater clarity. And finally, prayer. Prayer is that space where we become more familiar with the sound of God's voice so that whenever God speaks, we can hear And we're creating this podcast that continues to have a lot of engagement. And I believe it could help you become more familiar with God's voice speaking in to your life. Would you take seriously the opportunity to engage in one of these activities so that like Paul, you could be a person who lives intensely, intentionally with one focus in your life? Because we know that all of us are going to continue traveling windy roads through thick snowstorms. And if we look at the snow that's falling, it's only going to cause us to drive off the road. Instead, we can put all of our focus on the one who will always lead us through any storm. With that in mind, Acknowledging the storms we're living in life, we'd love to take some time right now and pray together for one another. I have here the prayer requests that have come in from you guys on the YouTube chat. If you'd like to write more in, that's a great way for everybody watching on the live stream to see them. And then we're going to pass these on to our prayer team as well. But would you pray with me now for the people of Centennial Covenant Church. God, we come to you and ask again, help our hearts and minds stay focused on you, the one who can lead us through any storm. God, along with John, we pray for Camille and her family. With Cheryl Stinson, we pray for relational healing whatever's going on in her life, and also the many, many relationships in our church that we know are hurting. We pray for compassion, empathy, attentiveness, patience, forgiveness, reconciliation. God, along with Jameson, we pray for direction and provision as she's looking for new internship opportunities. In the early service, Lord, there were people who prayed for physical healing. We pray for all who are suffering from physical ailments. Bring them healing, God. People ask for prayer about mental illness. We pray that we'd be a community that supports those navigating mental illness. Lord, we know people have transitions and changing responsibilities at work. Help us to know how to faithfully serve you in whatever our vocational lives are. And Lord, we acknowledge that beyond what's spoken, there are so many other things going on in our lives. Help us to always lay before you, our God, 
whatever burdens we're carrying, whatever needs we have, so that we might not be overwhelmed by the storms of our lives, but rather we might find strength by looking to you, the one who will lead us through any storm. Amen.